this case, you are very familiar with indoor cycling simulators, correct? Absolutely. These, these are the programs where you are riding around on a trainer and racing against your friends in a virtual world, yes? I, I love the virtual world. I know. Well, it's cold outside. It's starting to snow. These virtual training worlds are becoming more popular than ever, and our good friends over at Be Cool have one of the best combinations of smart trainers and virtual training worlds out there on the market. And right now, Be Cool has a special promotion for fans of the Velo News podcast. They are giving away a free trainer as well as a three-month free trial of their virtual training platform. And what sets them apart from some of the other programs out there is that they have thousands of different virtual training routes out there for you to ride on. In fact, you can even make your own based off of your own favorite rides. And that is Be Cool, B-K-O-O-L. Right now, special promotion for us. You got to go to a URL. Chris, what's that URL? It is BeCool.com slash partners slash News. Again, sign up for a three-month free trial of the training simulator and a chance to win a trainer. Okay, on with the show. You're tuned to the Valley News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Chris Case. Spencer Paulison, not with us today. I think he was like walking to go see the new uh, Star Wars movie and a Got Sarlacc. Lost. Got lost. Sarlacc just ate him. Oh, that's what it was. Oh, that's right. he's gone. Right. <laughs> uh, instead, we have Chris Case, managing editor, and Andrew Hood, our European correspondent, because, guys, we are D-Day plus five days since the big news story broke around Chris Froome, our four-time Tour de France champion, who had an adverse analytical finding, not a positive test, adverse analytical, for too much salbutamol in his system. This story broke last week on Wednesday, and since then, the cycling world has been aflame with news stories and hot, 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 hot takes on the matter. Sizzling. Fact, our Facebook page, I got a th- shout out to the uh, the good fans of Vela News on our Facebook page because our Facebook page has just been takes flying around <laughs> back bet, and forth. I bet it has. Real polarizing story. This is like the Donald Trump of cycling stories right Ooh. now. Polarizing. Ooh. You're on one side or the other. Hoodie, you are on the ground in Europe. I- I'm curious before we get started... What's been your take on the polarizing nature of this story up to this point? Yeah, it's been it's been one of those uh, doping stories. Well, I can't say the word doping, right? That's a naughty word. <laughs> one of the, one of those stories that you know you really need to dig in to the nitty gritty, into the fine details, talk to some experts, and try to get your head around exactly what's at stake, what's going on. Uh, even today, the UCI issued a kind of a long explainer trying to kind of quell some of this hysteria out there because people think that high-level Sambutamol, Chris Froome should be banned, he's a doper, and he should be banned you know, for four years. Whereas uh, every time we get into these cases, there are always a lot of wrinkles and, and layers to these stories. So it's been interesting just the last few days trying to talk to some different people, get really a better idea of what really the issues are, what's at stake, and what might happen in these next uh, several weeks and months. Because I think everyone agrees it, it's not going to be resolved quickly. 
Now, well, that's what we've been doing. We here at Vela News have been shaking the trees and talking to experts and people in the know. Hoodie, you've been doing a bunch of great reporting on the ground there in Europe. And Chris, today you spoke with a Dr. John Dickinson from Kent University, who's a sports asthma specialist. In fact, this guy... He actually tested Chris Froome for asthma, correct? He has. He is with objective tests. He's tested Chris and and can confirm that he actually has asthma. Can't go into the details. Can't tell us how severe that asthma is. He tested the uh, tested the team. So yeah, in 2014, he actually tested uh, all of Team Sky and found that 30 percent of the team had exercise induced asthma. So. I don't know if we want to get into the details now or later, but um, there's a there's a difference between full-blown yeah. asthmatics, wheezing and coughing on the side of the road, and exercise-induced asthma. We're going to get into that. We're going to dig in with Dr. John and Chris in the second half of the program. But first, Hoodie, let's get it to it with you. So the entire cycling world seems to be on hold right now as people wait to see what the fallout has been. There have been a number of cyclists who have made public comments. Uh, I believe Tony Martin came out immediately and said that this reeked of scandal, and then over the weekend sort of backpedaled from those comments. Uh, Roman Bardet gave kind of a limp public comment, basically saying this is bad for cycling, but not coming down one way or the other. On He's a PR from, specialist, is he not? He is. He has a master's degree, and I believe he was a PR guy, so mm-hmm. you know, walking that fine line. What's your sense of how of where the cycling world is right now, Monday, D-Day plus five uh, with the Chris Froome story? I think that people are trying to take stock, uh, again, trying to get their heads around exactly what's going on with the story and really what will happen in, in these coming, uh, you know, these next critical steps. Right now, the ball is in Chris Froome and Team Sky's court, so to speak. They have now the opportunity to demonstrate that, as as Chris mentioned, that uh, Froome has this uh, induced, athletic-induced uh, asthma, and that uh, he did not exceed the allowed uh, doses of asabutamol. Very strict guidelines for that, and of course, uh, Chris is 100% above that level, a thousand micrograms and he's tested for 2000 and a lot of the experts that i talked to and i've seen some other interviews that come out from different outlets and nearly everyone agrees that's a very high number that uh, that's quite a high hurdle that i think firm and sky have to try to uh demonstrate that they didn't do anything that's uh, either was illegal or a type of use that is banned of sabutamol and now in order to clear his name they basically have to try and recreate the test in a lab. So they have to try and show that Chris Froome is capable of having a reading of 2000 in a lab test. A pharmacokinetic study is what they call it, yes. And Chris, what what exactly is that? Educate well, me. yeah, they try to recreate the situation, essentially, and, and uh, do so, uh, you know, they'll have him... I don't know if, the, if they'll have him on a trainer in a lab, but they'll have him performing exercise, giving him doses of salbutamol, and then testing his urine sample like they have in this this test that returned the adverse analytical, and testing it uh, over a number of hours to see how the the levels in his in his urine sample will either increase or decrease and degrade over time to see if they can re- uh, recreate the, the conditions that they found in his sample during the Vuelta. And we have a precedent here because 
Diego Ulysses tried to do this, right, Hoodie? This was something that Diego Ulysses tried to do to uh, overturn his salbutamol uh, positive from a few years back. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Ulysses tested high for salbutamol in 2014. His levels were just a little bit lower than firms around 1900. So a little bit lower than firms. Uh, he, 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 from what I understand, Ulysses, I think, is the only rider who's actually tried to do this test to be able to demonstrate his, uh, quote, innocence using this method for Sabutama. I've been asking around, and no one else can think of another example how this has been used. So that's quite an interesting standard. And according to what I understand, Ulissi fell well short of being able to demonstrate that uh, through these lab tests that his levels could be recreate those levels. Yeah. So, of course, we saw, just quickly, we saw that Ulysses was uh, handed down a nine-month ban. So, tricky up, tricky uh, terrain here for Chris Froome and Team Scott. Yeah, and, and Dr. Dickinson actually said that it's quite difficult to <laughs> to reproduce the conditions, first of all. And he, he basically said Froome and the Team Scott are taking a risk by doing this. Uh, the, the risk being that he'll come back and, with a finding that, puts him below the level, and then you've, what am I trying to say? You've kind of exhausted your chance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You put yourself out there. I mean, Hoodie and I were chatting beforehand. It, it, it is a very strange way to go about clearing your name. I mean, to me, it does have a little ring of the old Salem witch trials of like, oh, she's a witch, throw her in a river. And if she swims, if she drowns, she wasn't a witch. And if she swims, I don't know if it's that bad, witch. but it's, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's uh it's an interesting uh, method. Let's put it that way. It is. Um, what's what? Another thing to mention here is that this Dr. Dickinson told me as well. The UCI does or WADA does not control for one's level of dehydration during the test. So he might have uh, returned this 2,000 nanograms of al- salbutamol, but that doesn't control for his state of perhaps dehydration. Right. So the concentration might have been quite a bit higher than. It would have been had he been drinking and and well hydrated during that stage. So to then recreate those conditions, you're what do you do? Do you intentionally dehydrate Chris going into the test? You know, all of those things are are such a an array of variables that it's really difficult to figure out how they're going to recreate these things. I think it's very simple. You just have him race eighteen straight stages of a grand tour like setting <laughs> and then have him do this on Zwift on Zwift oh, sorry be cool on be cool be cool <laughs> oh god no I mean it, it does sound like a very difficult situation to be in and it's and it sucks we just say it it sucks because the whole cycling world is waiting for this to be resolved and it's not going to be for a while um, Hoodie you have a piece on the site today about how the grand tours have now been thrown in this waiting game because nobody wants a repeat of the Contador 2011 situation where you have a guy able to race and then the results are taken away. Yet nobody really wants to say no to Chris Froome because he is such a draw. You spoke to some of these people. What's the general sentiment amongst the Grand Tours of of what to do with Chris Froome? Well, right now we're in a holding pattern waiting to kind of see how this plays out. I didn't speak directly to Venya. He was quoted in uh, Tutobichi, an Italian website from uh, a couple of days ago. And from what I understand from another source I have that uh, I won't say which Grand Tour it is, but the Grand Tours in general are not happy about this at all. Because, of course, the Tour 
and the Giro were both making plans for Froome to race in their events in 2018. And even though the Grand Tours say that they don't design a course for a specific rider uh, in mind, the Grand Tours are in contact with the teams. They are in contact with the riders and the managers when they when they're talking about who's coming to the races, which teams are bringing which riders. The, the Grand Tours are very well tuned into what the teams are doing and what they're planning on. So the fact that uh, Froome and Sky knew about this from September 20th, which was during the World Championships until it leaked out um, just past this past week, that's a lot of time where Sky knew about it. And uh, according to the rules, it's important to point this out, they have the right not to reveal this information. So Team Sky did not do anything that they're not allowed to do in the sense of uh, there's some sort of cover-up. That's not the case. They have a right to keep this private. That's what they chose to do for obvious reasons. And But you know they didn't tell anybody. Obviously, they, they probably didn't tell the Giro or ASO. But of course, uh, the Giro made the big announcement just last week that, yeah, Chris Froome is coming to the Giro. And then, boom, a week later, <laughs> you know, the house of cards comes falling down. And that's one thing that struck me that about being very strange about this whole story in general is that, so, the you know, Chris Froome supposedly learns of this news in September, but then through the offseason, you know, he's still giving interviews. I know he did a big, long sit-down podcast with a cycling podcast. He did the video around the Giro, a lot of press in the well not not a lot of press but some press in the aftermath of that you know but that was a big story and it strikes me as very difficult to be in a situation like that where you're doing press you have a lot of eyeballs on you yet there is this secret in the back of your mind you know and that and to me that just seems like something that cycling has been through before with some of these guys knowing that bad news is about to break or that knowing that there's there's news that could come down that could really alter what a season looks like yeah it's a secret that they very much were hoping did not get come out yeah that's <laughs> I think. also my sentiment I, yeah uh, hoodie how would you compare this to the contador 2011 case with uh, clenbuterol. You know, that was a little different. It broke after the Tour de France, but same sort of thing. There was there was lag time and then there was planning that had to go on. You know, you were heavily involved in covering Contador at that time. How did he handle his business uh, compared to what we've been seeing with Sky and Froome? I think there are some similarities in the sense that both parties, Sky and Froome and Contador at the time, you know, we're insisting that they are innocent. They are insisting that uh, they did nothing wrong. That's that's a strong message that Froome has been sending out in every interview he's done. He's, he keeps insisting he hasn't broken any rules. So that's perhaps one way to rationalize his behavior as, quote, normal, is the fact that he feels like he hasn't done anything wrong. And the same with Contador back in 2010. You know, he felt that the, the, the microscopic uh, micrograms of clenbuterol that were in his system, he insisted and still insists that they were uh, not through his uh, his knowing and doing. That, of course, you know, his argument was that uh, he ate a contaminated steak, which was <laughs> goes down in, one of, in the annals of uh, doping excuses as one of the, you know, that would be the top 10 on that one. But it's interesting to remember, even in that case with clenbuterol, the Cost eventually because from of Contador, excuse me, did appeal it to cost. That's why he was able to keep racing. He raced and won the Giro in 2011. Later, got disqualified. But cost when it when it ruled it, it kind of uh, went against Contador's argument. Went against the other argument from the other side and said that 
it could probably came from a contaminated uh, energy bar. So uh, these things get real messy, and riders to the very end will insist on their innocence. Yeah, and then we as fans and journalists and people covering the sport have to make sense of what comes out of it. You know, the other uh, news story that broke, well, I wouldn't say broke, but uh, the MPCC, our good friends at the MPCC, put out a statement basically saying that uh, Sky should provisionally suspend Froome. Sky not part of the MPCC, so it's kind of an... I would say an empty comment, but you know they have no governing authority over Sky. Uh, but what did you take from that public comment, Sky, with the MPCC, you know, saying that they should suspend uh, Froome? I, I think that it's it's uh, it just kind of reveals that conflict between the ethical standards that the MPCC have tried to impose and this higher standard that they live up to in terms of when a rider is being called out for some sort of investigation or an inquiry that they should voluntarily step aside. And the inconsistency there of what the water rule is, which allows, in this case, for Froome to, to keep, uh, com- keep competing. And that's why a lot of teams have gradually stepped away from the MPCC because they feel, the teams feel, that there's an inconsistency there in the, in the water code and what this uh, uh, group is standing for and that it just confuses everyone. And it makes it difficult for the teams, they say, to abide by this kind of double standard, so to speak. You know, Hoodie, I, I, with the, getting back to the Contador comparison, one thing that struck me about this story in general, and maybe this is putting the cart before the horse, but you know, Contador was never really the same after uh, the Ken Blu- Clen Buterol thing, and you can hypothesize for why that is as a cycling fan. But you know, it strikes me as the emotional and mental challenge of having to go through something like this, try to clear your name, potentially sit out for a while. There's real sort of emotional energy that gets drained for someone like this. And, you know, you have to wonder if this case is going to have a similar effect on Chris Froome going forward. Uh, Alberto Contador won Grand Tours afterwards, never won the Tour de France again. Um, You know, last week, Spencer hypothesized that maybe this is it for Chris Froome winning the Tour de France. Again, that's putting the cart before the horse, but you do have to wonder what type of mental and emotional strain, something like this that's going to be drawn out for months could have on an, an elite rider like Chris Froome. And plus, in the in the wider context, what's been happening with Team Sky, they have really been hammered uh, both in the media and in the public eye back in the UK for the Jiffy Bag story, for the Wiggins TUEs in the 2012. So their legacy is really under the microscope. So you're right, there could be a compounding interest there in terms of the pressure, the expectations, kind of having that cloud over you because Froome was always very proudly saying that his legacy will stand the test of time. There won't be any backdated tests that will you know, reveal that he was cheating or any sort of uh, fancy Bears leaks that will haunt him down the road. And he was proudly standing up and saying that he is a clean Tour de France winner. So psychologically, there will be a price to be paid. You know, how he handles that will be interesting to see. One thing you can say about Froome is he's a fighter. That's one thing almost everyone agrees about Chris Froome is that when he's on the bike, there's no one who can suffer and who can, who can fight as hard as Chris Froome. And I think that was true about Contador as well. Yeah, he never won 
the tour de France again, but man, he really just, you know, he did never holding back. So you feel like there's perhaps there's that shadow that's over these guys. And at least in the case of Contador, it seemed like he was just doing everything he could do to win every race. He started to try to escape that, that, that cloud of doubt. So we'll see what happens with Froome. I think another thing that will be interesting to follow with this is how does the British press follow this? You know, I can t- speak from my own experience and looking at the comments on our social media pages. There is a nationalistic divide for sure. British fans definitely seem to be in Chris Froome's corner. They seem to be defending him, which is... I totally understand why. And the national press, I've seen sports columns written on either side of the divide. There seems to be a real sort of understanding that, yes, this is an over, you know, an over an overdose of medication. This isn't like blood bags and this isn't transfusions and testing positive for EPO. It's a different type of test. And there are explanations behind it of Chris Room being sick, being an asthmatic. There's the potential for him, you know, having taken too much asthma medication. And perhaps that is not a nefarious reason. And we shouldn't hold this to the same standard. But Hoodie, again, like you said, when viewed through the lens of the last 15 months of British cycling, which has been sort of nonstop headlines that are negative, there's definitely some sports columnists who have have, have brought that in. Um, Oliver Brown, chief sports writer for The Telegraph, wrote, so for now, Froome can spare us any talk of untainted legacies. His sport has the grimiest history, and it is one in which his team, Sky, have failed to make a convincing piece. So, I mean, he's choosing to view the Froome positive, well, the Froome adverse analytical, not just through the lens of Sky's recent history, but the sports history in general. And that's unfortunately something that Froome is going to have to battle through is, um, you know, it's not just the science and not just the legality, but it's sort of the public perception uh, surrounding the man as well. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that take as well, because I think that's going to be his biggest obstacle, perhaps, in this whole scenario. Because it'll be interesting to see some of the legal issues that play out in terms of the uh, strict liability, in terms of, you know, a product is in your body that's not supposed to be there, like clenbuterol or a testosterone or an EPO, automatic ban. But it's going to be curious to see how this plays out in terms of uh, the legal battle, get the lawyers involved, if if even if Froome cannot prove his case in this lab test, you know, will he still face a ban? Will he still lose that welter? It's going to be uh, it's going to be a very dramatic next few months. Well, plenty to follow there, hoodie. Thanks so much for hopping on the call. Chris, did you get out and ride your bicycle this weekend? Yes, indeed. Oh man, me too. I put some big miles in. Racked up some uh, 20? Yeah. 25 miles? 25, 30. Come on. You know, that's big for me. That is. Went and racked up some big, like, uh, KOMs on Strava. Just kidding. (laughs) No way. Um, For healthy, fit individuals like us, our good friends at Health IQ have a great deal going on. You probably have heard us talking about Health IQ in the past on the Villainous Podcast. They're the life insurance company that works with cyclists, runners, vegans, people who are healthy because they can give us a great rate. So right now, Health IQ have a URL where fans of the podcast can go and get a great rate on life insurance. Chris, what's the URL? Very simple, healthiq.com slash 
One more time, healthiq.com slash VeloNews. Go over there for a great quote. All right, back to the show. Um, okay, Chris Case, you just got off the phone with a really interesting doctor over in Great Britain. He is at the University of Kent, I believe. Yes, yes. And this is Dr. John Dickinson. So uh, take me through your call with Dr. John, because he actually has tested Chris Froome for asthma. He has. Yeah, I wanted to check in with uh, Dr. Dickinson because he specializes in asthma in athletes, in sports. So exercise-induced asthma. He has tested Team Sky in the past for symptoms of EIA, found that 30% of the team back in 2014 could be diagnosed with EIA. He's also specifically tested objectively now, we're talking about, Chris Froome and can tell us that he does in fact have asthma. There's no weird conspiracy going on. There's no uh, nefarious reason why Chris Froome is claiming to have asthma. He actually does, uh, objectively. He can't tell Dr. Dickinson because of patient confidentiality, of course, can't tell us how severe it is, but we, we can rest assured he has it. Here's a question that I have for you too, because this is something we've heard about a long time, which is the um, pro cyclists that a high percentage of pro cyclists suffer from asthma or some type of asthma-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've heard people say, well, it's just so they can get these inhalers, which are per you know, perhaps a, a masking agent for PEDs or some type of PED. But then I've seen other reports that say, no, you know, repeated cardiovascular exercise like cycling does increase your chances of having asthma. What did Dr. Dickinson have to say about that, the relationship between cycling and asthma? Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, you have to understand that uh, full-blown asthmatics are one thing and people with exercise-induced asthma is a are another thing. Potentially, those athletes only have asthma during hard efforts mm -hmm. and prolonged hard efforts. They may not have asthma at any other time. And what's happening, uh, according to the research, is that the high volume of air that they're having to chug for these efforts, the, the number of hours at a time that they're, that they're performing, leads to a lot of air um, irritating the airways cold to dry air, obviously uh, more of an irritant and pollutants in the air being a trigger in themselves. So all of these things work against or work against an athlete. A lot of the times you're breathing through your nose, mm -hmm. it filters a lot of those irritants. Breathing straight through your mouth, it doesn't. And then in high volumes, it just exacerbates the issue. So that's what leads to this exercise induced asthma. So basically, it's you're breathing hard more often, bringing more irritants, particulates into your lungs, and that itself can irritate them. Absolutely. And then it leads to muscle constrictions around the airways, and that's when you have uh, an asthma attack or the, the, the sensation of an asthma attack. And in Dickinson's lab, you know, they've studied a lot of athletes, and somebody can be diagnosed with EIA if they see just a 10% drop in the volume of, uh, the test involves ex exhaling as hard and as powerfully as you can, and they measure the volume of air in a single second, and if they see a 10% drop between baseline and when somebody is uh, working at an effort, mm -hmm. then they can be diagnosed with EIA. So that's not a massive drop. No, that's not. So, you know, obviously one of the most well-known 
medications used is salbutamol. Right. Um, I've used it. I have asthma. Um, it, you know, do you I really? Do, I know. <laughs> uh, there's the inhalers. There's nebulizers. Mm-hmm. You can take it intravenous, intravenously as well as orally. What did Dr. Dickinson say about the power of salbutamol and the different ways you can take it and its effect on the body. Sure. So in their research, again, when they uh, are testing individuals that they have shown to uh, exhibit symptoms of EIA, they'll put them on salbutamol and um, they bring them back to normal. That's what an inhaled form of salbutamol does. It doesn't bring somebody back to normal and then beyond it. They don't, empirically, they just can't, you can't improve your natural breathing beyond normal with salbutamol, according to this research. Oral form of salbutamol, uh, if you take it, it, it has a more uh, wide-reaching uh, systemic effect, and it can affect uh, you know, power and strength because it, it acts on the ways in which muscles contract. If you think about what's happening in asthma, it, your muscles are constricting because they're irritated in your, in your airways, and so the salbutamol relaxes them. So it works on those same mechanisms, but in a more systemic way. So orally, it does have different properties. What's interesting, though, is you can tell, based on someone's urine sample and the presence of salbutamol, whether they've inhaled it or they've taken it through other means. I don't believe the use, or WADA has announced the method, mm-hmm. but I would assume, well, let's not assume. Right now, we believe that the, the only source of the salbutamol could be inhaled, because that's what Chris Froome has said. So for those who are out there thinking, oh, he's masking, or he's trying to get some boost from an oral dosage, they would know if he had taken it orally or intravenously. Intravenously. So did Dr. Dickinson have any thoughts or ideas on having, you know, hyper-concentrated levels of salbutamol in the urine? Like what type of conditions could produce something like that? Yeah, I asked uh, I asked Dr. Dickinson this very question, like what what do you think is going on? And he he wanted to remain on the positive side of things. He didn't want to jump to conclusions. You know, as a scientist, you can respect him for that. What he thought was the most viable sort of scenario was that this represented a mismanagement of Chris Froome's asthma. Interesting. That he's heard the fact that Froome was suffering from asthma on during this period of the Vuelta. He took a salbutamol at pretty high doses for, for three days. He doesn't know exactly the doses, obviously. He doesn't, he's not privy to that information at this point. But if you think about, if you think about that, there may be, or may have been in this case, a cumulative effect where Froome takes, he has symptoms, he takes uh, salbutamol, and you can do essentially 16 puffs in a 24-hour period, each puff being 100. And the next day, maybe he has more symptoms. What are you What are you going to do? You take more of it. And then you, the third day, again, you take more of it. And, and somewhere in there, it gets concentrated in his body, and he draws the adverse analytical. 
So Dr. Dickinson said to me, this is a mismanagement because if you're an athlete and you're suffering from an asthma, asthma-like symptoms, you take salbutamol, it doesn't necessarily work and you feel those same symptoms the next day, then you should really be moving on to something a bit different, mm-hmm. not necessarily more powerful, just something different, something more uh, preventative instead of uh, react- reactive. Um, and there are there are things that you can do. Uh, this the, he is a specialist. He knows uh, what those things are. I don't know if Sky has a pulmonologist on their team to to really understand the mechanics here. Well, and, and then you also have to wonder what type of treatment is then governed by WADA code. Where it's like if the smart thing to do with someone in this scenario is like you know hey you know it's day three or four your asthma's not going away you're in really rough shape maybe we you know change dosage, but that might violate something. Right. To do with you know, and then there's the, the further fact and, and, and Andy uh, hoodie alluded to this, the, the fact that team sky is embroiled in all these controversies that somewhat surround, uh, surrounding TUEs generally, maybe the team is hesitant to use TUEs, which in some regard is, is completely unfortunate that you may have an athlete that has medical, a completely legitimate medical, issue going on and the team is like well should we really do this this is optically this is going to look terrible so we yeah just push through it just push through it Mm -hmm. that's that's not good um but maybe that comes to play here um well and that is part of a greater question which is what is the role of grand tour racing in general it's to like measure the fittest athlete as their body is breaking down under three weeks of stress and sickness is part of that. And maybe asthma is part of that too. And, you know, basically we're making an ethical decision with asthma medication to say, as your body is breaking down and as asthmatics are suffering more from their condition, we will allow them to you know, improve themselves to, to get back to where they were up to a point, but going above and beyond this sort of arbitrary line in the sand constitutes an infraction. Whereas basically what they're doing is trying to deal with, you know, part of their body being horribly taxed and, and stressed. Yeah, it's a, it's so gray and so many ways. It's a it's a it's a weird thing. Ultimately, you know, maybe Chris Froome is at the point where he should have just gotten pulled off. If his asthma is really that bad, maybe his health is of greater concern than winning another red, or winning a red jersey. But what doctor on what team is going to have enough sway to come to a rider and convince them that they should pull out when they're in the leader's jersey and on the brink of history? You know, it's not, yeah, it's not going to happen. That's definitely not going to happen. That is, that's an interesting question to have. Like what, what is the, um, the bigger drawback getting dropped, getting super sick or doing something that gets you in the violation of water code. Right. Well, that's some interesting stuff, Chris. Did he have any hypotheses about how long this would take, what the next steps were, you know, basically whether or not Sky and Chris Froome would be able to replicate this type of reading and conditions in a lab. Yeah, he, I think, along with the rest of the world, thinks this is going to drag on for a while. It's going to be pretty messy. Um, he, he's fairly certain because the, the this adverse analytical has been known, at least to Team Sky, for months, that they've done some of the, the work they need to do to prove their case. So they need to understand what Chris's state of hydration was on that day, or try to understand what it was. They need to find out how many puffs 
that he was taking, if they can possibly figure that out from three months ago, then they likely will go through this pharmacokinetic study. Does he get one shot at, shot at it to prove his case or multiple shots? UCI is probably... The, it's their discretion. I don't know if there's a, just a f extremely straightforward protocol here or not. I'm, I'm just not certain. But I think just like Dr. Dickinson, we can all agree this is, in all likelihood, this is going to drag on for a while and it's going to be ugly. And will Chris Froome ever put this behind him, whether or not he it goes into the lab and is like, look, I always metabolize this slowly and my levels are always going to read high. I just, it's bad. It's yeah, bad for him. Not a good look. Okay, Chris. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad you were able to uh, talk with Dr. Dickinson. And everyone go to VelNews.com and check out some of the stories we've talked about today, including Chris's interview with Dr. Dickinson as we try to understand and explain the Chris Froome dilemma uh, at D-Day plus five. <laughs> So, Chris, this is our final show before the Ooh, big holiday, yes. Christmas holiday, and I wanted to ask you, what is your riding plan over the holidays? You know, it's kind of a stressful time. There's a lot of family in town, or maybe you're out there visiting family. Do you have any good tips for uh, how to ride over the holidays? Mm, how to ride. Ride as far and as fast as way from all the family controversies that you can. I like basically. that. That's a good one, too. I have in the past tried to get out early mm -hmm. because a lot of times there's so much family requirements going on that the whole day is taken up. But then, of course, then it's cold. So it's like you run, you have to like straddle the line between so early that your hands are going to fall off versus making it back in time so you don't get yelled at. They make those bar mitts things. Have you ever tried those? Oh, that's great. Yeah, bar mitts. Maybe ask for, for Santa to bring you a pair. Yeah. What's on, do you have any like bike products on your Santa wish list? It's tough mm. when you work in the bike industry because we get a lot of testing stuff that's in true. to check out. Uh, you know, I don't. I, uh, I don't have anything big on my wish list. No. That's a pretty boring answer, but yeah. that's, that's the way it is. I am just wishing for peace, goodwill towards <laughs> men and women, and of course, a speedy resolution. To the Chris, Chris Room saga. saga. <laughs> I think that's what I'm going to be wishing Keep wishing. For. Keep yep. wishing. Well, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the VelNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelNews. The VelNews podcast is produced by VelNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic Soul Drums. Mm -hmm.